Take your Bibles and turn with me. First John. I said to the early service, probably by now when we come to these times, you're by, if, you're, if you've been attending for any length of time, your Bible naturally falls open to Genesis 12. We're going to try to retrain it towards the backside, and we'll be in 1 John for some time. So 1 John, we're going to actually be in chapter 5 in just a few moments, uh, and then we'll end up in another part of the book of the Bible before it's all said and done. I'm glad that you're here today, and especially if you're here and uh, this is not necessarily where you hang out on Sundays, we're especially glad that you're here and we invite you to just kind of fit in and be part of part of the family here. None of us have arrived. None of us have figured out all there is to know about how to handle this thing called life, but many of us here have figured out that Jesus does know how to handle life. And so we hook our wagons to him, so to speak. Let's pray. Father, in the stillness and in the quiet of this moment, as best we know how, we make ourselves available to your spirit. And we pray that you would have your way with us today. We pray that you would change lives today. And that as we finish this time, where we feast on your word, we ask you to change me. And may that be all of our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that marked my early life as a Christian was um, the, the typical things you would expect from a preacher's kid, and that was I was at church all the time. Uh, but when I was 13 years of age, as Caleb reminded us today, I reached that point in my life where I knew that I was lost and I needed a Savior. And so I accepted Christ as my Savior. That was on a youth camp outing. And I came back from that experience. And for a while, I was, uh, I was on fire, I think is the way we like to say that in church lingo. As one guy said, I was willing to charge hell with a water pistol for the sake of Christ. And that lasted for probably a couple of weeks, and then a few more weeks after that of slipping back into the way of life that I had before and some of the bad attitudes and bad practices that I had before that, I found myself beginning to question whether I really was a child of God or not, whether I really had been saved or not in church lingo. I found since then, through the years, that many Christians fight that battle. While their head says, yes, you have this experience, something about them cries out for assurance. How can I be sure that I know Jesus Christ, that I'm saved? We usually say it this way, if, if I died right now, I'm not sure that I would go to heaven or not. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that often comes from the lips of people who sing songs at church like we've already sung here today about we believe these things. 
And yet somehow that nagging doubt invades our thinking. Good question for us, I think, to entertain is why do so many Christians struggle with that? And it may be that you're here today and you're one of those and maybe the, 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 the conclusion of that struggle has been reached for you, uh, but maybe not. Maybe you're one of those here today and you, you just know, I know the church stuff, but I'm not, I just can't feel like I'm saved. Why is that so common? I, I, through the years, I've watched some things and, and here's one of the reasons I think we find that in church people. It's just spiritual warfare. After all, if you decided that you were going to be uh, a tool used by God on a day-to-day basis in spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and living out the kingdom of God in your everyday life as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you determined that that was going to be who you were and how you were going to live your life, I'll promise you that Satan would begin to focus a little more attention on you. Satan is never more threatened by a child of God but when that child of God decides to be a child of God. So sometimes it's spiritual warfare, I think, that causes us to step back and go, well, but maybe, maybe not. Here's another thing, and this one is not nearly so uh, easily worn by us. One of the things that I think drives a lot of doubts for people is what I call easy believism. And that's that part of us as a Christian group of people who, as we evangelize, many times we have reduced the gospel to just a simple set of beliefs. Now, we just sang this song, and I'm going to refer back to it now at length, okay? Uh, Not so much in time, but in emphasis. I love the song that we have sung today. We believe in it. Lays out some of those basic tenets of the faith. But... One of the things that we can easily fall into is we just get people to mentally check the boxes on those things, and then we are more than willing to say, okay, you've checked the boxes, you must be saved now. That's easy believism. And for many years of my life, at least, in the organized church that I have experienced, we have sold the fire insurance and neglected the command of following Jesus. It's a big difference. There's a lot of people filling churches across America today who will check off the boxes. Yes, I believe those things. But when it comes to seeing evidence of Jesus Christ alive in their lives, it's not there. And yeah, I am picking at that point. I'm going to pick a lot at that point before this is all said and done. But at the outset, what I want to do is I want to highlight the fact that sometimes people question whether they're really saved or not because they got saved in their head but never translated into their lives. There's something about that that we, it's it's a tension and we don't want to fall off of the horse on either side there theologically, but the reality is many people doubt their salvation because they had some intellectual experience. I think probably the biggest side comes with that is this whole idea of living outside of the relationship. Let me put it this way. Now, my wife's sitting down here on the front row. She sits up close so that she can keep an eye on me, just so that you know that. Uh, We've been married a while. 
If my relationship with Teresa was limited to standing in front of a preacher 33 years ago plus some months, and if I lived my life in a way with her where every morning when I got up, I just jumped off into my own little world. I never talked to her. I never would do anything with her. I would never share life experiences. I wouldn't come home from work and talk about, you know. No, I'm not going to tell you what preachers talk about when they come home. (laughs) And if she went through her life that way as my marriage partner, and she got up and went about her business every day, and there was never a word spoken, there was never any attempt to build that relationship that we have with one another, if that was the kind of marriage we had, we would be married but have no marriage. Does that make sense? But doesn't that capture the religious experience of many people when it comes to their relationship with Jesus Christ? There was a marriage ceremony, but there was never any sharing of life. And if that's you, if you find yourself questioning whether what you say you believe has real benefit in your life, if you're really saved or not, then one of the things I would say is pay attention to the dynamics of the relationship itself. Now, I get all of that out of John's little letter. We call it 1 John. And over in chapter 5, John is going to make a statement. And I'm going to, let me, let me explain how we're going to do this today and how we do the series, really. The, when we come to study people like the Apostle Paul or uh, when we, a while back I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke and normally what I do is I, I kind of start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, we work our way through and with Paul we get used to this real logical flow of thought and so he, he makes his point here and then he'll fill in underneath it and, and it makes for easy studying and not necessarily easy preaching but at least the ability for us to compartmentalize things in the way those letters are written. John doesn't do that. John wasn't the Pharisee Paul was. John was a fisherman. And John writes kind of like he would do a conversation with somebody. It's not that it's all over the map, but it's all over the map. And so John will make basically, there are four primary reasons that he writes this according to his own way of writing it. I write these things to you so that, and then he'll tell us what. So that forms the skeleton, if you will, of what he has to say. But it's like this circle. It's like a merry-go-round. And so he comes around to this topic, and then he'll move on to another topic, and he'll come back around. And and it's like this cycle that he works through in this book. So what I want to do is I want to take those key points, and then we'll fill in. Uh, As you'll see today, we're going to start at the back of the book, and we're going to fill in from the front of the book because he talks that way. But I also want to take this and I want to highlight what moved John. It's it's one of the great privileges we have in Scripture is to see a guy in the early part of his ministry, if you will, as a disciple of Jesus, a fisherman, an ordinary guy like we've talked about before. We get to see him there and then we get to jump forward after all of these years in relationship with Christ. We get to see him at the end of his life as he writes these little letters to those people who have followed him in faith. So we'll support some things that maybe John had in mind when he writes some of the stuff that we see here. So we begin today in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, a very simple statement, but yet he has a lot to say about it in other places. So chapter 5 verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe 
Sound, sound familiar so far? You're about to get caught up on the believe word today in church? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants his readers, John wants you to nail it down. I know Jesus Christ. You don't have to live a life that causes you to wonder whether you're saved or not. John says we can know this. I want you to know this. I write these things so that you can nail it down. Well, if he says that, then surely he's going to support that. And in fact, he does support that. Look now backwards to chapter 2. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Now, I'll give you a little bit of time to turn because that's every bit of two different pages probably in your Bible. In John, 1 John, if I said John, I didn't mean it. 1 John Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. Now, remember, he's filling in. The big statement is 513. I write these things so that you may know. Chapter 2, now, beginning in verse 3, says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. In other words, he's going to fill in a little bit for us. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John takes a strong stand. One of the ways that you know that you're a child of God is in your ability. I don't know if I want to say that. It's not so much about the ability to keep his commands. It is the, the keeping of his commands. It wouldn't be fair if we were expected to keep something we can't, especially if it's one of those things that helps us to know that we're saved. And so John says... Here's how you can know that you know him, and that is if you keep his commandments, and if you say you keep them and you don't, well, you're just a liar. Always like throwing that word into a conversation with somebody. You're just a liar. You know, that gets you shot in East Texas. Well, at least in my yard it will. But wait a minute. Think back through your days in church. Is it possible for somebody to not be saved and still keep commandments? You know where this came home to me the most? When I was at church that I talked about where I got saved, there was a family there. This family actually was a husband and wife, and they were old. They were ancient. They were then about as old as I am now, old people. They worked with our children. As a matter of fact, he was in charge of the children's church that we did when we met as a church, the children met another place and we would bring them in once a month and we would all meet together. But this guy was in charge of children's church. He was just the guy, he sold boats for a living if I remember right. And he had been a Christian and his wife had been part of ministry for many, many years, decades in fact. And at one of our revival meetings in that church, that lady, her name was Billy, walked the aisle after decades of Christian service and said, I never accepted Christ as my Savior. I've been doing all this work and I've never been a child of God. Is it possible that John wouldn't be aware of that? That, Is it just a matter of rope doing stuff? I, I would remind you that John also walked around with another disciple named Judas Iscariot who 
seem to be able to do the commandments, but his heart seemed to be far from Christ. John is not promoting some kind of a blind, mindless rule-keeping. If that's what you take from verses 3 and 4, I would encourage you to kind of hang in there with me for just a little bit. But John is not encouraging this uh, blind, mindless rule-keeping and saying if you'll just keep the rules, then you know. He has more to say about that in this passage. We haven't finished his thought And I'll finish it in just a moment. But here's one of the things we have to get. The Christian life, kingdom living, cannot be reduced to just ethics or morality. There's a lot of people. My dad used to talk about some people and say, you know, that lady, she is better by nature than I am by grace. You know what that means? That means he knew he was a scoundrel. Mean, my dad was. And some people were just nicer just by their basic nature. One of the things that we do in church, if we're not careful, is we reduce the whole Christian relationship down to just a set of do's and don'ts. And we truck our way through Scripture and we say, okay, well, Christians don't, or the Christian men at least, don't date girls who dip snuff. <laughs> I would encourage you to step back a little bit and consider how much we try to reduce the Christian life and kingdom living to just jumping through hoops. We do these things, we don't do those things, and so that somehow seems to make us what? Let me remind you of the basic thrust of this series that we're going through. Here it is. Your vertical relationship, that is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The only way that you can have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. He makes it possible for us. And that vertical relationship informs all of our horizontal relationships. I'll say it this way. When your relationship and your fellowship with God, that's the vertical part, when that breaks down... I'll guarantee you, you're going to see a breakdown in your horizontal relationships too. That's the fundamental truth that we find through John's gospel here. And he's going to say it a number of different ways for us. And we come to this today. And so the outset of this series for us is to look at our vertical relationship. And if we're walking around all the time wondering, am I really saved or not? We will never be effective for God's kingdom. Because we've never settled the basic issue. Who do we belong to? One of the reasons we have so many church wars is because churches are full of individual people whose horizontal relationships are being informed by a broken vertical relationship. And so church becomes, if we're not careful, this posturing and this kingdom against kingdom, and I don't mean capital K there. So John writes to a group of people and he says, we've got to get this love thing right. So let's see what he says in clarifying this thing. I'll back to verse 3 and I'll read on from there. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. I'll keep reading. By this, we know that we are in him. Remember chapter 5, verse 13. John's filling in the blanks for us. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that is in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. John has just laid down the gauntlet for rule-keeping Christianity. It's not that we shouldn't keep those rules. It's not that we shouldn't have a strong ethic and strong morals. But it is that the kingdom of God and living such is more than just ethics. Look at what he says. First of all, I'll put this in my words now. Word keeping is a function of maturing love. Look at the way he says this. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, now John is taking this whole idea of keeping the commandments. And he says, essentially for us here, the only way you're going to keep the commandments is if the love of God is working you over. The picture of the word perfect here is not that spotless deal, although that's the ultimate goal. It means to be complete. And so what he's saying here is that if the love of God is maturing in us, then we're going to keep those commandments. Well, then that's not enough for us because he takes another step here. But before we take that step, now let's go ahead and take it. Verse 6, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Wow, are you serious? Walking here is a metaphor for living In other words, what he says is, if the love of God is maturing in you, then you're going to look like Jesus looked. Hello. But you see, when we don't walk like that, then it opens the door for us to question whether we're his children or not. You know, back to me in that deal after camp, you know why I started doubting my salvation? Even though I know, even today I look backwards and I know that I accepted Christ at that point as a 13-year-old kid. You know what caused me to start doubting my salvation? I started living like the devil. I started doing stuff that Christ would never do. Well, of course you're going to wonder if you're his child if you're trying to live in such a way that he would never take part in. This is personal things. Our lives have to resemble his. So here's what I want to do in the time that I have left. That's John's point. You want to know that you have eternal life? One of the things, he's got other things to say about this in here. We'll visit those. If you want to know that you have eternal life and nail it down in your life, John says, abide in him. Walk with him. That takes it out of the arena where we can just show up at church on Sunday and believe that we've done all we need to do. Let me tell you, I I know that it's old, it's tired, but I'm going to use it again because it communicates so well. Showing up and being in church on Sunday does not guarantee you're a a Christian any more than standing in a garage guarantees you're a car. That makes sense. And yet churches are full of people that just show up and say, well, I've done my Christian duty. I've kept the commandments in the spirit of John 2, 1 John 2. And I think Jesus goes, yes, but do you know who I am? Because 
I don't, well, I like to joke around with our staff guys a lot. Now I've got a bunch of them to joke around with. That's fulfilling for me. I don't mind telling you, that youth minister guy you got, I was praying the other day and it's like God said, hey, tell Aaron to get a hold of me. I hadn't heard from him in a while. No, I'm just kidding. Hello? <laughs> wow, y'all took that way too seriously. Is it possible that God might say that to somebody else? About you? I used to hate to go see my parents because my mother, my dear sweet mother, just by who she was, I was convicted about my lack of contact with God. John says, you got to walk with him. And if you're in the midst of walking with Christ, my suspicion is that you're probably not going to question whether you're his child or not. So let's see where John picks some of this stuff. What are some of the evidence of, evidences of kingdom living that we see in Jesus that ought to be evident to us? After all, John doesn't just arbitrarily come to what he comes to in 1 John chapter 2. He doesn't just arbitrarily say, well, you know, if you abide in him, if you walk with him, uh, then you'll know that you're his child. John has a little more history, and he brings a little more history to the table. So, so what are some of those evidences that we might see? I got four of them for you, if I counted right. Yep. Uh, and in the time that we have, I'll kind of fly through these. I may just throw some references at you, and you can go back and check them. But here's the first one. If you're walking with Christ, if you're abiding in him, as John talks about in 1 John 2, then one of the things that is going to be true about you was true about Jesus and that first generation of disciples, and that is if you're walking with him, you will have a very public faith, not private. In other words, there's no... <laughs> oh, wow. Um, you just can't reconcile being secret about your faith. If you're walking with Jesus, he'll have none of that. First, in, in John chapter 1, the first, I'm not going to go to here to read this, but when Jesus calls his disciples, remember you go back and read in the account all of the gospels where he's calling his disciples, never once do we hear Jesus say, you guys come follow me and when we get us all together, we're going to get on a boat, we're going to go out to this island in the middle of the Mediterranean and we're going to camp out there and we're not going to let anybody know that we're still alive, but you'll grow while you're there. He never does that. Jesus always puts his followers and his potential followers on the spot. Follow me in a very public way. And yet we find so many Christians in our day who are content to be private disciples of Jesus. Here's another one. If you walk with Christ, this is what kingdom living involves. There will be evidence of kingdom power in your life. All right, I'm going to watch these Baptists squirm now. In John chapter 6, we have an account. John chapter 6 and verse 16, it says this, And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed three or four miles... 
They saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now, let me just encourage you. I know what I'm preaching here. I know that evidence of, of you being a child of God is that there will be kingdom power evident in your life. Don't go up here to Sam Rayburn and jump out of the boat expecting to walk on the water like Jesus did. All right? If you're going to do that, get a good life check and get one of those satellite pinging things that will let everybody know where you're at. And we'll send a boat for you. Evidence of kingdom power. Why is it that we marginalize the power that Jesus brings to our lives? Is it because we're afraid that maybe we might get a little bit charismatic or something? John 14. Tough verse. John chapter 14, verse 12 says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Is there evidence of the miraculous power of God in your life? If I read Scripture correctly, if you're walking with him, Yes. Now, I'm going to leave it to you a little bit today to figure out what that looks like. Here's one of the places. I'm not going to leave it to you. You knew better than that, didn't you? Here's one of the ways. This is, this is really on the easy end of the discussion. You know, Facebook... Facebook, Facebook. Facebook is the great revealer of spiritual depth or the lack of same. Hear what I just said? So many people, Christian people, church people, are willing to get on Facebook and let the world know just how powerless their Christianity is. And our Broken vertical relationships spills through our fingers to reveal our broken horizontal relationships and the powerlessness of a Christian life that follows that pattern. Jesus Christ exhibited incredible power in his life. Through the years, I've seen God show up in powerful ways through his people. But typically, it's only the people who are abiding in him and walking in him. I'm out of time, so let me give you these last two and we'll be done. Another evidence of the kingdom power in your life as you're walking with Christ, these things will be part of how you do life. This is the one that I call breaking down social barriers. Those things that divide us on the horizontal plane. Everybody, anybody heard of Ferguson, Missouri? Anybody heard of sections of Beaumont where the social barriers are erected and kept in pristine condition so that we don't get dirty? John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. That daggum Jesus, he is always stirring up trouble. 
It's a shame his church won't follow suit with that these days, but Jesus was always stirring up trouble. And in this particular instance, Jesus is working his way through and he goes through Samaria and he gets to this place and he sends his disciples on into town to get food and he has this encounter with this Samaritan woman. Remember that? The woman at the well. Remember, John, a disciple of Jesus, witnessed this as he returned back and Jesus is having this life-changing kingdom invading the earth experience with this woman. And the disciples come back, John 4, 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Oh my Lord, are you kidding? He talked to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. And the disciples said, oh no, it doesn't say that. But no one said. They marveled But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? In other words, the disciples were pretty well developed in their social stigmas. But they were smart enough not to challenge Jesus verbally. Isn't it interesting that when the disciples showed up, the woman left. Now, she left to go tell people about Jesus but she left. I wonder how many times church people show up into a situation that has the opportunity to break down social barriers and people run because the church is there. So here's the last one. John chapter 8 tells us the story of the woman taken in adultery. One of the things that will be evident in your life as a follower of God, as a, an abider in Christ, is that you will operate as an agent of grace. Why is it that the people of God who have experienced mercy and grace at the hand of God are some of the most vindictive, grace-avoiding people? Take the measure of a church and its health by asking around about how many people have grudges against other people in the church. The conflict avoidance that is so prevalent in the world seems to have become the norm for some Christians. And yet Jesus breaks into that and this woman taken in adultery and these people bring him to try, or bring this woman to him to try to trap him and Jesus is more worried about her than he is about him. Isn't that just kind of like Jesus? Don't forget the Road Trammel family motto. Part three is forgive and forget but always remember how ungodly that is. Be an agent grace. So here, let's round this up. I think what John would say to us is when you walk with the king, he rubs off on you. The evidence of that is that you'll have kingdom ethic. and You'll have kingdom power. And you will keep those commandments that John was talking about over there in his letter. But the reality is when you walk with the king, he rubs off on you and you become more like him. Never in my life when I deal with people who really do that do I hear them say, I'm just not sure if I'm saved or not. There's something about walking with Jesus that nails that down for you. 
if you're here, I don't, and you're listening to this, I'm not necessarily saying that you're not saved if you don't have these things in your life. I am saying that if you are questioning your salvation, the place to begin looking to settle that is in how much are you abiding with him? Because when you abide with him, he builds his life into you. What I'm saying in the spirit of our whole series here is get connected with him. And one of the first benefits you get is you get to settle that long questioning of whether I'm really his or not. He'll, he'll just nail that down for you. So let me ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. Isn't it makes sense that if Jesus is our Savior, and he is, and he is our example, and he is, that he also ought to be our inspiration. What is the level of life that you are shooting for? Father, we ask that you would have your way with us. Change us. Father, if there's anybody here right now who needs to settle their salvation. Whether they have a past experience or not, maybe this is the first time they really have sensed the life that you offer to them. If there's any of those people here, help them settle it now. Help them nail it down now. They make that step to you, that one step to you that causes you to reach up and grab them and pull them close to your heart and say, I have a life for you. Father, many of us desperately need to revisit how connected we are with you. And many of us need to think again about how we've lived our lives with you at the margins rather than at the center. We ask you to do your work now in each of our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.